Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 10th of April 2023 and this is episode 295. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to historian and author Professor Richard Overy, Honorary Professor at the University of Exeter, about his recent book on the formation of the Royal Air Force in April 1918. This book was published by Penwin UK in 2018. Richard spoke to me from his home in Italy. Richard, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the formation of the RAF? Well, this is quite an easy question to answer. Um, I was uh, chairman of the research board at the RAF Museum in Hendon, North London, um, a board that was set up the first time in 2014. And the object was to try to enhance the academic profile of the museum. And as the anniversary approached, we you know, wondered what was going to happen, who was going to write something, and nobody did. And in the end, I thought, well, if nobody's going to do it, I'll write a short book about the um, uh, centenary of the RAF. Uh, it needed to be done. The museum was so pleased. So let's go back um, a bit bit further in history, and let's talk about the formation of its predecessor or organisation, the Royal Flying Corps. What was this unit, and when was it formed? The, the background of the RAF uh, really involves uh, looking at the formation of the Royal Flying Corps in uh, 1912. But we also need to remember, of course, that there was a, a naval air service. And by the time of the outbreak of the First World War, the Royal Naval Air Service was probably the more important of the two. I believe that somehow aircraft would help uh, the, the fleet uh, reconnaissance uh, operations and so on and so on. But... Um, the army was slow um, to embrace air power compared with uh, European armies. Um, and we did so in the end simply because you know, other powers were building up you know, a, 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 an air force. But almost everybody thought the air force only had one function, which was reconnaissance, trying to find out what the enemy was doing, spotting enemy artillery and so on, um, rather than you know any other form of uh, operational work. Um, and that's what the, uh, the the British Army wanted. So in exercises before the outbreak of war, um, aircraft were largely used for that purpose to to you know in, in, to find where you know where Army A was or Army B was in the exercise. Um, they proved very useful, and very quickly, of course, uh, people in the army began to say, "Well, actually, once we've got aircraft up there, perhaps they can start to do a few other things." So they began to practice using aircraft with guns on board, even a machine gun. Um, and you know, for for um, for the Royal Flying Corps, as for other European air forces, that was the starting point. You know, you finally decided that you didn't just do reconnaissance, or if you did do reconnaissance, you had to have some means of keeping other people's aircraft at bay. So how does the REFC um, develop between August 14 and April 1918? Well, again, I think one has to distinguish between uh, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service. I mean, they were rivals, 
they were rivals right the way through. They were rivals for you know engine output. They were rivals for you know different aircraft design and so on. And the Royal Naval Air Service um, had did have an important part to play in in um, surveying where the German fleet was and so on, in um, providing assistance to um, to the fleet at sea. Uh, the Royal Flying Corps, on the other hand, uh, moved to France uh, at the outbreak of war. Um, and a very large proportion of its early activity was reconnaissance. Um, it's very useful, of course, to have somebody up there telling you where the enemy's artillery is and suggesting that, uh, you know, through you know, a series of signals or whatever, um, that you could hit their artillery with greater accuracy. Um, but it soon became very clear um, that the enemy had aircraft that were going to stop you doing that. So a lot of the early activity is about reconnaissance and about stopping people doing reconnaissance, which means arming your aeroplanes. A long time, really, before people start to think that maybe you could drop bombs on people from above. Indeed, for the Royal Flying Corps, that was never a particularly important activity, right the way through to um, 1917. Uh, artillery spotting, reconnaissance, um, and achieving air superiority, which simply meant stopping, in this case, German aircraft uh, from flying over the Western Front, um, carrying out their own reconnaissance and so on. And soon that that became not just subsidiary, but almost central, of course. You had to establish air superiority. That meant you had to have aircraft that could, you know, shoot other aircraft down. Um, and, you know, fighter on fighter, uh, combat became characteristic by 1916, 1917. So it emerged from, you know, an initial commitment to reconnaissance and artillery spotting um, to uh, a commitment to air superiority. Once you had air superiority, you could then do the other things. You could then spot enemy artillery. Um, you could even, you know, by 1916, 17, drop small bombs on enemy trenches. Not that, that did very much. Um, but that, that's really where the RFC was by 1917, 1918. What about the size of the service? How did it expand in terms of numbers of squadrons and aircraft? Well, the expansion was slow, um, but uh, slow partly because the British, you know, there wasn't a British aircraft industry. It had to be built up really from scratch. Um, but by the middle years of the First World War, uh, output was up and running, um, certainly by 1917. And the more output there was, the more squadrons you could have. Uh, so that as as the war went on, it expanded from a handful of squadrons in, in uh, August 1914 when war broke out to more than 200 uh, by the time the RF is founded. Uh, so it becomes a very big organisation. And because... British aircraft production really took off in 1917, uh, principally because of the appointment of a, of a minister, Lord Weir, an industrialist who really understood how to get, you know, how to get something out of British industry with its strong engineering tradition. Um, and in 1917, 1918, aircraft production really took off much more, in fact, than in um, the, uh, among the central powers. Um, and Britain by 1918 had uh, you know, the largest air force on the Western Front. And when is the decision taken to actually create a separate service, um, the Royal Air Force, and, uh, and, and, um, and essentially remove the RNAS or the Royal Naval Air Service from the, the Royal Navy and the RFC from the Army into a separate bureaucracy? 
Well, this was a very tricky situation. Um, the Royal Naval Air Service um, had served its purpose, and the Admiralty wanted to keep it. Couldn't see any reason why anybody else should want to take it over because nobody else really understood what uh, the war at sea required. And that was the case they made all the way through to 1918 when the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service were merged together into the RAF. Uh, they couldn't understand why it, it had to be abandoned. Um, the decision was really taken out of their hands um, in 1917 by the onset of German bombing of British cities, particularly the German bombing of London and the big raids in July 1917, which was really in some ways the turning point. Um, uh, uh, Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, um, supported particularly by Winston Churchill, uh, said, you know, we can't, this can't go on. We've got to have a means of defending ourselves against bombing. Uh, and you're sucking all these aircraft into the Western Front. Uh, obviously, what we need to have is an independent air arm uh, which can perform all the functions required of it. I can support the battle. Uh, it can defend the British uh, British Isles. Um, it can, you know, work with the fleet. Um, Lloyd George left this to the South African politician Jan Smuts, who happened to be in London, um, witnessing the first major raids. Um, Lloyd George liked him, thought he was a bright guy, and said, go away and think about how we build an independent air force. And he did. He went away and he produced two reports. One was on the air defence of London and how that should be organised. And it, the, the, the subsequent defence largely followed Smuts' um, recommendations. Um, and then he produced another report saying, you know, the best thing is to have an independent air force, you know, where you've got everything together, production, training, organisation and so on. Um, and that should also include the Royal Naval Air Service. It has to be said that the... Smuts report is often seen as the as the real initiator of the RAF, um, but it's important to remember that that the the, the key figure is uh, a guy called David Henderson, who being charge of the Royal Flying Corps earlier in the war, uh, who really did understand the nature of air power and how it should be exercised, and he sat down with Smuts throughout the summer of two thousand. Uh, sorry, sir. I'll start starting again. He sat down with Smuts throughout the summer of uh, 1917, explaining to him his ideas about the nature of air power. And it's really Henderson's vision of the future IEF that's really important, even though everybody talks about the Smuts report as the as the as a founding report for the uh, for the force. And was there a wider lobby within, I suppose, the army um, to actually create this independent force? Did this sort of um, new service actually create its own sort of identity, culture, um, and sort of, I suppose, you know, we have Blackadder with the 20 Minuters, but this idea that they are unique um, by the war or mid midpoint way through the war? Well, the reaction of the services to uh, the plan to build a Royal Air Force was mixed. As I said, the, the Navy was strongly opposed, remained opposed throughout um, and long after the formation of the RAF. Um, for the Army, uh, it was a problem because they really wanted a tactical air force. They wanted an air force at the, you know, on the Western Front doing things that it did very well. Um, it was with great reluctance that they uh, uh, thought uh, air defence was a possibility in the UK. And of course, it wasn't really a possibility because it was very difficult for um, these primitive fighter aircraft to fly high enough to reach the bombers and in time to shoot them down. So very few were. Um, and um, there was quite strong opposition from uh, leading army personnel against the idea that you could 
separate air and army. Uh, they seemed to be pretty much together. Uh, one of the key opponents was actually uh, Hugh Trenchard, who later became, of course, the most famous first chief of the air staff, post-war chief of the air staff. Uh, and he absolutely opposed this idea. He said there has to be a tactical air force. We have to be uh, in command of it. Uh, the army has to be in command of it. Um, and we have to uh, uh, have all the aircraft we want from the uh, British aircraft industry. Um, in the end, uh, Lloyd George and um, other supporters in Parliament, including Churchill particularly, um, carried the day. Uh, there was widespread interest in air power, very popular, of course, with the public too, um, and a conviction that somehow or other um, Britain's air performance would improve if it actually had a unitary service and a ministry of aircraft, uh, a ministry of aircraft production and a ministry of air, um, uh, and um, improve in order to prevent the Germans from carrying on the bombing of British cities. I mean, the Germans did stop, not in fact because of the RAF, um, but for other reasons. Um, so there was a strong enough political lobby. Uh, some senior army commanders, particularly Douglas Haig, who wasn't opposed to the idea, as long as you know they carried on having a tactical air force. Um, and in a rather half-hearted, rather confused way, the decisions were taken in late 1917 to form an RAF on the 1st of April 1918, an inauspicious date, evidently. <laughs> so that, that neatly seg me, segues me into my next question is, does the creation of the RAF as a separate service improve its operational performance in, in the last sort of six months of the war? Well, there was a great deal of argument about whether it would or how it would. Um, they set up, of course, the air defence of Great Britain, uh, which was, as I've said, pretty ineffective. You, know, uh, you couldn't really shoot a bomber down very soon. There were very few bombers to shoot down. Um, so they sat there not doing very much. Um, uh, in fact, the um, RAF's main operational activity in the last six months, seven months of the war, was exactly the same as the RFC. Um, they carried on artillery spotting, they carried on establishing air superiority, which they did eventually establish by the summer of 1918. Um, a critical factor uh, which made a difference, if you like, between the RFC and the RAF was the idea that the RAF could also develop an independent bombing arm. And that was associated particularly uh, with Frederick Sykes, who was the second chief of the air staff, new chief of the air staff. Uh, Trenchard had been the first choice, but he resigned after a few weeks, fed up with all the bureaucracy. Uh, Sykes had a vision for air power, which was different. He thought you could defend the UK, you could have a tactical air force on the Western Front, but you could also have a bomber force independence of the army, which would be sent deep into Germany and drop bombs on German uh, military production. And the so-called independent force was set up in the summer of 1918, um, and its uh, commander was Hugh Trenchard, um, who had been so sceptical about uh, the RAF and so sceptical, in fact, about the idea of bombing. Um, but when he was asked to do it, uh, I think he really felt that at least somebody with some air experience should be running it, and so he did. But in fact, the Independent Air Force was um, a paper tiger. It dropped uh, a, a small quantity of bombs on German cities. It had almost no effect to it. German public panicked a lot. Um, 
and um, and uh, the big plans to use it in 1919 never materialized, of course, because the war came to an end. Trenchard privately noted that what an absurd waste of time this whole exercise was. So really, up you know, until the very last days of the war, uh, the RAF really concentrated on the things the RFC had done. Um, and did them very well because, of course, you know, the RFC was on a long learning curve. But by 1918, the RAF was able to pick up where the RFC had left off uh, and did become a very effective tactical force. And my final question is, where can people learn more about the RAF and your work? <clears throat> uh, well, um, I should say, actually, before we, we move on to, uh, to that, that it's worth remembering that the real story about the formation of the RAF comes after the end of the war. There's a two or three year period in which both the army and the navy made enormous efforts to split up the RAF, return the Air Force entirely to the control of the Admiralty uh, and the War Office, uh, and to discard a force that they regarded as, as simply an upstart, you know, a waste of time and money. Um, and the real founding of the RAF doesn't happen until 1926 when the Prime Minister, Stanley Baldwin, finally says to the Army and Navy, look, we've had enough, we're fed up with this argument. You know, Parliament is, you know, in favour of the RAF. You shut up and the RAF exists. And from that point on, you could say that the RAF was firmly founded. But actually, for the you know, eight years after the end of the First World War, it was often touch and go. Now, to come back to the question you did ask me, <laughs> well, um, one of the ways people can learn a lot more um, about the RFCRAF is to go to the RAF Museum in Hendon, North London. They set up a special uh, hangar now on the First World War, and it's an excellent guide to everything, really, about the um, the RFC and the RAF as it took over. Um, in fact, that's, you know, I can't think of any better way of getting uh, a handle on it. Um uh, my own work has, you know, drifted away from the RAF. And this was, as I said, a book that I, I wrote because nobody else was writing one. I thought the RAF Museum deserved one. Um, I've written a big book on uh, on bombing, the bombing war in the Second World War, uh, which, of course, you know, is rooted in the experience of air warfare in the First World War, and particularly in the um, decision by the RAF to think about bombing in 1918. And that... that never went away. It grew and grew and grew in terms of the culture of the RAF until by 1939, it was the thing the RAF was most committed to. Um, and you can, so you can, you, know, you, can, you can read my book on the bombing war and you can learn where the RAF went from its beginnings in 1918. Um, I can't say that I've given up writing about bombing because I'm going to write an anniversary book for the bombing of Tokyo and Hiroshima in a couple of years' time. Uh, that, unfortunately, is outside the remit of our podcast at the moment. But on that yeah. bombshell, Richard, <laughs> thank you very much okay. for your time. All right. My pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman, 
and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>